Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Tom. How are you? Hey, Russ. Doing great. How about you? All right. Show me the glass. Here's the glass. How did I never see this before? I don't know. I usually don't have a lot of ice in it. Maybe that made it look different. Oh, it could be. Yeah, I thought yeah. you had like a, I thought you had like a mug or a, a water bottle or something, and not a glass. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's what I get for not paying attention. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's been a crazy week for me. I'm recording videos for Pearson, and finishing up books, and I don't know. And speaking, I'm speaking at a conference in a couple of in a couple of weeks, and I got to get that going. I've gotten everything done for that. So how about you? Crazy week or <clears throat> you kind of yeah. laid back and not doing anything because it's hot there, right? Yeah. When it gets hot in Texas, we just don't do anything. Yeah. Just yeah, kidding. And today we are joined by Carl Buckman, who is, you said, between Toronto and. And Montreal. So I'm based in Montreal. Ottawa. Okay. Based in I'm Ottawa. I'm in Ottawa. Okay. So the national capital. Okay. All right. I know that when I used to call, maybe it wasn't Ottawa, but it, what is the French? Is it Ottawa? Is, is Ottawa native French speaking, or is that? Uh, we're a very bilingual town because of the federal government. Uh, Montreal would be okay. Montreal, French, yeah, and I actually I, I grew up in Montreal, so I'm more native French speaking. So you'll okay. potentially notice that in my accent when I'm oh, talking. That's, that's cool. Uh, I just remember yeah. calling companies in Montreal and saying, you know, the answering machine is in French. And then you're like, well, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> My yeah. only second language is C. I don't know French. Sorry. <laughs> what's, what's really interesting and, in, you know, because I, I I've worked on uh, deals for Quebec, but when responding to an RFP in French with trying to use network terminologies in French is very difficult. Oh, yeah. Uh, even for even for a native French speaker that, you know, the language is completely different. And I've in my IT career, I've always worked in English uh, primarily. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. The yeah, I have this friend, as friend Alvaro Atana, who probably people have heard, he's been on the hedge before and stuff and even co-hosted and stuff. Anyway, he uh, was born and raised in Costa Rica. And so we would go to Cisco Live in Costa Rica and speak. And he would speak one, he would give one presentation and he would do it in Spanish. And they would translate it to English in real time. And then he would do it in English and they would translate it to Spanish. And he's like, oh. I just can't win with this. Like, no matter <laughs> what I do, the translation doesn't come out right. I try everything. And the translation's not right. He's like, I just don't know what to do. <laughs> and it's really funny listening to the Spanish translations. They'll be going on and on, and then they'll say MPLS. And he's right. like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's really hard to, like, I even present to French customers a lot, and I said, you can ask me questions in French, but... I will respond to English because my brain cannot translate on the fly like they do. Like they'll speak Franglish to me. That's the term we use when we mix both languages. And I'm my brain just yeah, I just can't. So like, I'll respond to you in English. And if you're not happy, then yeah, I don't know what to say. Know, yeah, sorry, it's just, it's just always rather humorous. Like all these yeah. different these different language things that go on. Yeah. 
So, okay, so today we are talking about automation again. And start, you developed a tool there where you work at Arista that sounded interesting. And let's so dive in there and get to thinking about GitHub and stuff like that. Yeah, no, thanks for asking, Russ. So, yeah, so the, the tool that uh, I lead at Arista and I, I created when I joined as a system engineer, it's called uh, Arista Validated Designs. Um, and uh, so I joined as an SE. I was the first SE in Ottawa. And um, I needed a tool for me to, to be able to, to create proof of concepts. And at the time, I, we, we were positioning a lot. We were focused in data center and especially data centers with EVPN. And that was new to me. I had worked a lot in data center and campus before, but primarily with you know, VRF light. Uh, type of topologies. So for me, I needed really a tool to, you know, help me execute these proof of concepts uh, and, you know, not only configure the gear, but provide some level of documentation to the customer and also test, uh, you know, test my POC to make sure things worked, uh, things work well. So yeah, it, it started just as a, you know, very uh, small project on my own to, to do this. And the first customer I showed uh, it to uh, and uh, I was supporting another SE in Toronto, actually, uh, doing the POC. They're like, we saw how fast we were able to build their environment. It took us like two days to build the environment from rack and stack to to get it up and running. And for them to start testing uh, with our gear, they were like, can we also use this tool for production? And that's when the light bulb came up is like, you know, when we talk with my manager and they're like, hey, you should talk to to Fred Sue and, and Doug Gourlay, who are, are now the, uh, I, I report into um, and, and about this. And uh, I, thankfully, uh, I'm very grateful for this. They're like, why don't we open source this project uh, on GitHub? Um, and, you know, we created a, a repository. They also helped me organize within the Arista. We have these working groups. Um, so they, they helped me organize and, and, and team up with other you know, automation savvy people uh, within Arista to, to build this. So uh, I was paired up with uh, a colleague, uh, Thomas Grimonet in France. Uh, and, you know, we uh, we started really uh, focusing on on building, you know, a community within Arista, uh, leveraging, you know, primarily GitHub as our tool to, to communicate because we're in different time zones. Um, and we we wanted to, to build something that was, you know, uh, useful for for all of our, you know, SEs, AS engineers that they could use to to do projects. The the first thing that strikes me about this is there there have been a number of great tools that started exactly like what you're talking about in vendors that that had a need of their own, and then customers find out about it and they're like, hey, I want that, and I, like I can think of a couple of them that uh, I think that's a, that's a really interesting journey. So, so what, uh, so since that has happened, and I think you were mentioned before we started recording this a couple of years ago, um, how, what, what do customers think of it now? Is it, is it, is it pretty successful? Oh, I, it's, it's, it's very successful. We have, we've been able to transform many customers to implement a full CICD pipeline. Right. Uh, and, you know, go from, from zero to hero, and if you look me up on LinkedIn, I, I did a, a post recently. Uh, one of my, uh, I guess, customers slash friends. Now we, we communicate a lot on Slack. Miles uh, talked about his journey at NetDevOps days in London, 
talking about how he, you know, and he was an early adopter of AVD 1.0 and how it helped him sort of implement that, you know, the, the dream that we all have as, as network engineers to like, how can I automate my network end to end and, and look at the holistic approach of not just config, but how do I build configs? How do I keep up my, uh, up to date my source of truth and how do I do testing on a network and AVD provides all of those uh, you know, fundamental building blocks. Uh, so it's very, so the customer can focus on, you know, how do I m update my processes, my culture within the team, as opposed to focusing on creating Jinja templates or, you know, the, the heavy lifting that you have to do, uh, you know, to, to just get networking off the ground. Right? Interesting. Yeah. I wonder sometimes if, have you found that it's easier to build culture with the tools in place? Because sometimes one way to build culture is to make the team build the tools, right? I mean, I know that sounds kind of maybe harsh, but I know when I was in the military, we weren't given much because part of the idea was that you learn to build ground up and the team yeah. building things together takes ownership in the product rather than in what they built rather than just like, yeah, that's kind of, you know, something somebody else gave to us type of thing. So is there, is there a cultural difference there? Do you think that, that you've seen or is that like, yeah. And, and um, as I potentially mentioned a bit earlier to you, maybe before we start recording, uh, I think that the big thing that we focused on when building this is, you know, everyone I think can bring different ideas to the table, right? I kind of picture like working in it. Sometimes it's like, you know, you can see the guitars behind me. It's like working in a band, right? Like, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, you know, primarily a bassist in the, the, the group I used to to play more regularly, but like, I cannot go on. You know, I know a bit how to play the drums, but I could never be a drummer, right? Uh, so everyone, I think, brings something key to the table or brings different ideas. So I think it's really important when building, especially network automation content, to work as a team and everyone like. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Julio on the team is like super good, uh, when it comes to documentation and formatting documentation and like, okay, go and, and strive on that. Like everyone brings various pieces to the table. So I think it's really important to, you know, create this culture of working together, having open channels and, and also taking the time. A lot of the engineers at Arista that contributed to the project, uh, immensely. Uh, they say like this project looks really interesting, but you know, Carl Tama, I don't know anything about writing a Jinja two template. So instead of us saying like, give me your requirements, I'll just write it for you. We went to that person uh, and we said, Hey, let's, uh, let's actually teach you how to do this. Let's teach you how to do a pull request. Um, and uh, you know, it was immensely successful. That person became a, a very active a contributor because she she enjoyed doing that. It helped her for her own project. We empowered her uh, to to do so. So then, if she needed a feature, she didn't have to wait for us. She just we we empowered the end user, um, and we we have that mentality of the team is like, okay, we you know our our goal is to empower you know Arista engineers and also the customers to, to self-sustain themselves. If I, if you want something, if you want fast, something faster, send me a pull request, <laughs> right. And leverage the tools to do that. And then, you know, 
how do we build it so that that's a robust process, right? Because we want to maintain the quality of the product high. Yeah. Um, I, I just think that's something we don't pay much attention to in our world is empowering rather than just doing. Yeah. And if automation is something that can be used to empower, I think it's a much bigger deal because, you know, we, we tend to see things as make my life easier rather than getting other people involved. Not just making yeah. other people's lives easier, but actually building community. We don't we don't tend to see, see our tools that way very much. Yeah, and I, I think when we look at network automation, uh, and I you know we work also with you know a lot of the people that contribute to the products are network engineers, but we also have pure you know software developers that are, are part of my extended team uh, that contribute to the project, where we you know we develop let's say data models to provision, let's say multicast, um, it's impossible to give that task to the peer developer, right? It, it has to be someone with domain expertise that understand, you know, how do I create this multicast configuration and you know, let's use EVPN multicast, which has a lot of different areas that I need to touch. Uh, it's complex. I need, I, I need the, the network domain expertise paired with the, you know, program expertise with a lot of, you know, the maintainers on, on my team, we all have, right? The, the three maintainers that are on my team now, we, we all come from a network engineering background with software skills. And I'm very lucky that the, my two other colleagues, Klaus and Guillaume now are phenomenal developers, way more than me. I focus more on like the, the, the overall program management now uh, of the product. Um, but uh, it, it takes that domain expertise, right? It's not just, I see a lot of companies fail that, Hey, I'm just going to hire a developer. Uh, and that's going to fix the problem, but it's really, uh, you need to, uh, to work in conjunction with the people that have the domain expertise and pair them together. And that's where people are successful. Right? So what, what kinds of, um, you mentioned, uh, community and pull requests, what kinds of, people are contributing is it mostly arista people is it mostly customers or what's the mix so i would say the probably 80 percent of it is arista uh, as i mentioned we're only three full-time maintainers now on the project uh the rest is our, our our greater working group uh and then um a lot of our customers also you know the the ones that are keen in into automation will participate and we've been on calls with customers to teach them also like it was their first pull request on github and we're like don't worry we'll teach you um and some of them as soon as we taught them they they were able to submit prs and then the other uh i guess uh i, I forgot to mention partners also participate right so we have partners that that participate as well which is you now and then we empower their own you know professional services teams uh so they can help and you know, support our customers. Some of uh, some open source, many open source projects are awesome when it comes to building community. Some are not. Um, what What are some of your philosophies about, like, how do you build communities with the code review process? Yeah, well, to me, um, to build community, and I'm going to steal this from from Ken Duda, uh, who's the CTO at Arista, uh, but it starts with quality. Right, and quality comes from from three places. It comes from culture, architecture, and testing. We talked about a lot about culture right now. Like 
you know, what, what's important to us, like the communication, but on top of cultures, like what's our development priorities. So for us, if we have a bug in the code, that's our number one priority. So if someone posts an issue and says, Hey, this is broken. That's the, uh, it's always the number one priority for, for my team to go and fix that release and do a release. The, the second thing is, you know, we'll focus on enabling customer projects, people that want features. And then uh, the third item, we focus on kind of these big long-term strategic initiatives. We just completed a big one with our latest release, which was building a, a input validation schema, developed our own schema that took about a year and a half to do. Uh, so that, but that's, you know, long-term stuff. Uh, when we talk about then architecture, when we uh, design our code, it's about the modularity of our code, right? So to enable people to contribute, I can't have this, you know, we cover when we compile all of our Jinja templates for our role that creates the, the final template for EOS, it's about, I think it's over 10,000 lines now, um, but it's all done in very modular pieces. So if people uh, touch any of these templates, they they touch a template that's like 20 lines. I think our, our biggest one is probably router BGP that has 200 line, but that's kind of the oddball, right? Because it's such a, a big uh, stack. Um, the the third aspect is, and it's it's where I say, we spend a lot of time as maintainers testing, right? So how do we create unit tests so that we can support, you know, anyone making changes to the code base without breaking something else? Right. Um, and then also quality. Uh, I mentioned we write a lot of Jinja 2 test cases. Jinja 2 does not have, well, did not have a good linter uh, to enforce code style. Uh, we, our team, we actually developed a, a Jinja 2 linter called J2Lint uh, that enforces code style. Um, and then we use, you know, for a lot of our code bases, Python. So, you know, using PyTest, uh, code coverage or unit testing. So that, so then we're able to constantly change refactor code. People can contribute and testing is, is a huge component, which is you know part of, you know, automate your automation. And that's what a lot of people also, I think, fail to do when they build automation content internally. At least that's what I did when I started using these tools is I did not, you know, think about testing my own code, right? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is something I'd like to point out. You, you're talking, what, you said 10,000 lines of code, 30,000 lines of code? Uh, like well, I'm talking specifically a template, yeah, uh, for our EOS CLI. Is, I think it's probably over 10,000. I think overall the project has like 80,000 lines of code okay. now, if not more. Yeah. Uh, so so one thing, I, you know, that occurs to me is that a lot of people get scared about software because they know that you're always in this position where you have to balance fixing bugs from new features, quality versus new stuff. But a lot of times when you're in that 80,000, to me, a sweet spot around code is 10 to 80,000, 100,000 lines of code. When you get to the point where you're working on projects like, I don't know, BGP implementation and FR routing is 130 files. I don't even know how many lines of code it is. Honestly, I could go sit and count them, but it's going to be over 250, 300,000 lines of code. Easily, oh, yeah. Just for yep. BGP. Yep. All of a sudden, those trade-offs become a lot more crucial. It becomes a lot harder to say, 
I have all these people using this. They all want features, but at the same time, I have 250,000 lines worth of code with bugs. And then the whole quality thing just seems to become harder. But when you're automating a network, you just don't need 250,000 lines of code. So that shouldn't be as much of a fear for people making those balanced trade-offs and figuring things out. Um, you should be in the 80,000 line range, I think. That's that's like what you where you should be. I don't know. Any thoughts on that, Tom or Carl? Well, I was I, I was wondering, um, you mentioned you were open sourcing it, but what did you build it? What components did you build it from? I imagine you didn't write it from scratch. I heard roles in there. You're using Ansible. Yeah. So at first, uh, it's a very good question. At first, uh, we were, um, the AVD project started as an Ansible collection. Uh, we've been certifying it since 2020, uh, early 2020, uh, which means to certify an Ansible collection, we meet we have to meet certain quality gates that Red Hat puts, which also helps up our quality. Uh, and that was really my first kind of foray. Like I never did this before joining Arista, right? So it was new to me and, and Tama at the time uh, to build that. Uh, most recently and, and, and led by my colleague Klaus is we've, we're also repackaging this content as a pure Python library called PyAVD, uh, which is uh, around our integration with our one of our tools, uh, CloudVision. But it, as a byproduct, we're also testing it with tools like Nornir uh, as well, where we can reach uh, you know, uh, faster speed, faster scale. But to be honest, with the Ansible implementation for a lot of enterprise customers, it's it works quite well you know, at a scale of a, you know, a fabric that has a hundred to 200 switches, um, it scales pretty well. Good. The, the, and the reason I ask, that's really, that's really interesting. The reason I ask is I think the, uh, the quality story plays out. I mean, not, not everyone has Arista's philosophy about quality. And I've watched, I've watched Ken's speeches about quality and I also recommend them to our listeners. Um, but not everybody thinks like that. A lot of people think, um, I'll ship the code and the customers will tell me where the bugs are. And, you know, I don't and I honestly don't know where Ansible is in that, uh, you know, in that mindset. But one thing is, sure, the larger an audience the project has, the better chance you have of somebody else finding your bug first um, being, you know. And, you and the have, larger number of pieces, the larger code count, the more bugs you're going to have. That's just yeah. I mean, that's just the reality of how things work. Yeah. And I, I think, I mean, when you look at Ansible, there's different components, right? There's the Ansible core engine. Right, which all for from our standpoint has been pretty solid. Like in our CI matrix, we we test our code across, you know, the different trains of of Ansible core. Uh, but where I think a lot of the bugs exist uh, for for when you're consuming Ansible as a consumer and you don't until you you end up developing it, you really understand kind of the differences. It's it the bugs are in the modules, the roles, and I think for a lot of vendors. Uh, especially networking vendors, it, it's really hard because they're also working against a foundation of, you know, it's not necessarily bug in the module, but also like what platform I'm interacting with. And I may be interacting with various versions of that so-called software, right? Uh, I'm very lucky at Arista that there's only one EOS software train Right. So from an automation perspective from us, we don't spend time qualifying different versions of EOS. 
we have one that runs our 12 port switch or you know our, our 7816 chassis and i don't have to change anything but other vendors they you know different platforms that they ship it's they may brand the software the same name and i don't want to call out these other vendors because that's not my goal here <laughs> but it makes it extremely difficult uh to qualify that uh the other thing that makes it i think easier for us is we also when we ship software we ship the same version available in a virtual instance uh either in container or a vm so like when we developed avd it was 100% on on virtual uh systems and then it just worked on our hardware right i didn't have, i had zero i have zero difference of how it interacts cuz it's the same build um of eos and that's mm -hmm. all, you know based on the foundation of what you know can establish at arista with quality right enables us on the automation side interesting so when we first started this conversation we were also talking about github and building community mm -hmm. yeah. and i find it interesting that your perspective on that around using a tool like github as a community builder so maybe talk a little bit about your experience there because you know like i said i've said before I don't, I don't know everything there is to know about GitHub. I mean, I did a Git pull this or a Git clone this morning and, you know, it's just, it's one of those things that I don't, I don't know that I work with it enough perhaps or something, but how, how do you see that as functioning to build community or to help people build community around a tool like that? Yeah. So, um, to me, like when we, you know, there's Git and then there's GitHub or GitLab, you know, whatever tool mm. you have that sits on top of Git, uh, they're really in my opinion, they're like a, a project management tool, right? Uh, we have, you know, we, we start by creating issue, defining our problem. That's where we discuss a lot when we're creating, let's say a new feature, a new data model. When then I go to my next step of like, okay, now I'm going to assign it to someone. We have dashboards that we create because we're a large team and, you know, we leverage, you know, at Arista, the large team in the community, if we look at a feature, we, we can assign it or people want to take it on, they self-assign it to themselves. And then we do a pull request. You know, they we related back to the issue saying, hey, I'm fixing issue XYZ. Um, we can discuss, we can create a task list in there for some, some of the bigger features to when we get on calls, we discuss, okay, what we need to do. And then, uh, on some of the bigger initiatives, sometimes we're multiple people, uh, you know, uh, contributing to that that pull request, right? And then where the task lists allow us to kind of establish our workflow, what we need to do next, um, and then the you know the whole communication, the review process. So all of our pull requests require two reviews. Uh, we engage a lot the community to help with reviews, you don't have to be. And when we ask someone to review a PR for us, it's not reviewing the code. The maintainers were responsible for code quality and may, make sure the code is written in a, a way that's sustainable. The, we want the reviewers to help, you know, does the documentation look right for that feature, new feature? Is it behaving as it, it should from a network perspective? And this is where we bring in the domain expertise I talked about earlier, right? We want network engineers to test you know, is this, oh, and then try to find the bugs <laughs> in our code at that time, right? Like, is it 
behaving the way I would expect to generate configuration. Um, and then it's, it's, you know, using GitHub and I talked about automation of automation. So our CI pipeline, our, all of our test suites, how we also create test cases uh, for a feature. Uh, so we leverage, because we, we built this on Ansible, uh, at first we leveraged Molecule, which is a test framework to test Molecule content. So it's basically writing your group R's, your playbook, exactly how you would do it, uh, you know, on your own network. So it's very familiar to people to read that test case as well. The test case is actually very readable from an end user uh, perspective. So that that really brings a lot of people to work together. So on a pull request, there's three different people that have to work on that to, to make it go through, right? Um, obviously there's some exception when we're two maintainers or we need to do a bug fix fast, then we kind of bypass the rule of saying if two maintainers review and if it's a fix, uh, and our CI passes, uh, we merge it in. So, um, so that is, uh, you know, key to, to the workflow. So you kind of use GitHub as a Kanban or as a project management system, which is different. Most people don't do that. They use GitHub just to manage the code base. And then they have some other project management system that they're using to plan futures, look at past, things like that. So that's that's a fa that's an interesting or fascinating use of of GitHub that I don't think I've I've seen before. Yeah, and and I think the key thing there, and you can see that with I think other open source project that really opens up so that customers can participate and you know people outside of Arista, right? So if I were to build this and I'm this with some of our internal project management tools, it would not expose that to uh, to our yeah. greater community, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, of course, that's true. I mean, but, you know, some people will use like Trello or something else that's theoretically open that people can use with a larger yeah. team. And they'll use that to manage their future release concept and stuff like that. And then they'll use Git just to manage their hub, their their um, just their code base. So yeah. you're, you're kind of merging those functions together, which, you know, is, very, again, very interesting. Now, I know in FR routing we have this thing where we pull feature requests out of GitHub, not really out. We put it in a wiki so that okay. they're not, they're not issues. They're not open issues because if you don't do that, then we end up with a thousand or 2000 open issues because everybody's forever asking your new features. Some of those things are going to sit for five years, 10 years, never get done. Then you end up with this huge issue backlog and you're like, okay, now I have 5,000 issues up and now what do I look at? Like, that's just insane. Oh, yeah. Like, that's a whole... Yeah, you can't do that, right? So we end up separating out the features in a different way just to just to make it where issues are issues and features are features. Yeah. So that's one of the things I find interesting about it. Tom, yeah, you mentioned... I... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say, you, you mentioned um, a user that you uh, walked through making their first, first pull request and stuff. Uh, that sounded really interesting. Is that is that user now an active contributor? Was that uh, something that changed the the course of what they do, or that oh, was it just kind of for that one thing? Or no, no, a hundred percent. That changed the course of of and what she did. There was actually Angelique that was one of the first you know major contributor kind of outside of me and Tama, and um, you know she she now has contributed to a lot of other 
open source projects at Arista as well, not just uh, this project, you know, wherever. And she's a, an AS engineer. So, um, you know, she was asked to work on various projects. So, and, and she's not, she's, she, she's, yeah, she participates a lot on not only this project, but other projects. So it, it opens up the door to a lot of people, not just for our project, but we have also this net DevOps community um, organization uh, where we have, uh, lots of, you know, different open source projects where people post like, hey, this is how I've done this cool thing. Uh, a lot of engineers tend to participate there because, it you know, the bars, uh, you know, they, they just want to share content, right? Uh, as opposed to contributing to a code base, which is is different, right? Sharing an example versus uh, contributing to a go, uh, co uh, code base is a bit different. That's a that's a fun story. That's a that's a hard threshold for many people to cross. Yeah. Um, so that's that's cool that you were able to help somebody with it. Yeah, and we're we help, like I said, many customers. And I, you know, I get on calls with a lot of customers, and I say, we want to empower you, right? We if you find something, or if you want to start by just our documentation, right? Like if if you find something in the documentation you want to help improve, um, we have a really good workflow for our documentation where. Um, our documentation is also maintained as code, right? Uh, it, earlier on, it was us, you know, maintaining and crafting markdown files by hand. Uh, but now, um, over the last year, uh, we built a input schema validation, which also we generate all of our documentation from our schema. Uh, so if you go to avd.arista.com, all of that site is generated from also the same repo that hosts the code. We don't maintain the documentation as a separate thing. So as soon as a feature is developed, uh, and that's something that we, we didn't talk about, but what does the feature need to include? Well, the code, the unit test, the documentation, right? So by having all of that always done at the same time, we always, you know, keep up with, uh, you know, code quality and also, you know, so people can use the feature because it's self-documenting essentially now. Interesting. Yeah. And and that's actually something you say self-documenting, but you don't mean within the code. You mean people write documentation at the same time they commit the code, right? Well, initially that's what they did. They would write documentation and markdown to explain that feature. And we had kind of a structure. It was, you would write kind of the YAML data model for our, you know, uh, the, our various roles that we would have. Uh, so that was our initial process. Uh, but then that led to potential mistakes in that documentation, or if we've changed that key, we forget to update the documentation that would get wrong. So now what we do is we have, uh, if you introduce like a new key in our data model to express something in router BGP, for example, we have a schema that drives that. So you have to extend the schema that you have to do that from a code perspective. And then from that schema, we automatically generate the documentation table uh, in both a table format and a, uh, you can also uh, view okay. it in a YAML yeah. format. So now it's, it's code driven as well. Yeah. So then your, your CI process, does it, does it enforce the extension of the schema? If you didn't put something in, does it tell you, no, you can't exactly. this? Exactly. Uh, if, if you didn't extend the schema, the, the, uh, the the molecule tests will say hey this you, this key's not uh permitted in this 
dictionary, right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that process would work for things beyond models, though. Like, I, I wonder about that process with things like uh, writing a piece of software to do, I don't know, to, t to take on a particular task. Like, uh, you know, monitoring by database, right, right, um, the right yes. database or something. Because it's not really a model anymore, and you can right. throw it in the code itself, but then how does the, how do you, I mean, I guess you could build a script that would say, this part of the code is documentation. I'm going to pull that out and make it into a separate file. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah. And if we look at kind of what's more closer to the code and, and our code base and I'll, I'll take, uh, you know, uh, Ansible examples where we develop, develop the, the Python plugin, right. Where, but the Ansible certification process requires us to document in the plugin. We cannot necessarily validate that the documentation is right because that's just a freeform string yeah. in, right. in Python, but Ansible forces us to also create documentation, you know, have a, a standard format for that, right? There's guardrails uh, on the Ansible certification process that uh, forces us to do that. And we um, we actually created our, our, our own tooling to create the documentation in a style that we want that reads, you know, that we comply with the Ansible specs, but we also, you know, drive the documentation the way we want our users to be seen. But you're absolutely right, Russ, that there could you know, it's hard to enforce that, you know, I don't miss make a mistake in that, that in, inputs yeah. um, per yeah. se. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Again, in FR routing, we don't allow people to commit new features unless there's documentation, but it's very hard to figure out what the quality of that documentation is, even when it's pushed in. Yeah. Uh, because nobody really looks at it to make sure it's tested what level of documentation you're talking about, like being able to describe a command on a command line is completely different than explaining how this command fits with other commands to, to create something. And yeah. those, those are not, it's very hard to figure all of that out. I'm struggling with this right now, which is why it's top of mind. I have a, I have a project I'm working on and the documentation explains all the commands, but it doesn't explain how you put them together to build something. And so, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, so this one says it does this, and then that one says it does that, and now I've got to figure out, do I use yeah. this one or that one, or what do I do? <laughs> yeah, now we're going to a whole other topic of, like, how to create good documentation. Yeah, but yeah there, there's, problem. you know, the, the inputs, but also creating examples and how to break it out, and I and I can't recall the word, and I'll, I'll have to text you after, but there is a framework around how you know, how you should organize documentation from, from the inputs, from creating examples or creating kind of snippets of how things also all work together, right? Uh, and there's different levels of, of documentation of how to um, express it uh, and make it available for end users yeah. to consume. Well, I think I think the, the, pro the enforcement process of saying you have to have something, you know, maybe we can't like read the developer's mind and, and say, did you write what you really wanted to write? We can't do that, but but the process of enforcing that you have to do something just yep. that by itself is pretty effective. It gets people thinking, okay, if I'm going to do a feature, I got to do, I can't just write some code and throw it against the wall. I have to do this, exactly. I have to do this. And once you do that for a few times, then, I mean, people will, people will do what they're going to do anyway, but, but the workflow uh, helps us to get in the right, the right habit. Yeah. I think you, you hit it right there. Like having it as a requirement and, and, and as I mentioned, we have, a minimum three people participating on a feature, right? A the author and then two reviewers that they have to review the documentation, and that's been like 
having documentation as a step in our workflow for PRs has been there since very early days of our our project, right? So it's not documentation was never an afterthought, and the PRs are small, so then therefore the documentation quality, you know, is is focused just on that. You know, sometimes you're adding two lines <laughs> of code, and you have documentation that comes with it. It's a lot easier to review, you know, a paragraph versus, you know me sending you a whole doc on something that's a hundred pages, you're, you're going to have very good quality for the first 10 or first 20, but then you're getting tired. And then the quality of the review gets lower and lower as yep. you process through the pages, right? That's just human nature. Uh, so keeping things small is also the, the other way of, of, of encouraging sort of that quality because it's easier for the human to review and digest. Yeah. Yep. Which goes back to modularization again, because if yes. the only way to keep things small, if you're really doing a lot of stuff, big complex stuff, is just to make it modular. I mean, you can't, you know, again, when you look at 250,000 lines of code in BGP, nobody knows that. Nobody knows every piece of that code. Nobody does. There's no nobody on the face of the planet who knows the entirety of any of the existing full-feature BGP implementations. I'm sorry to tell you that. If that's a surprise to you and you're out there listening and you're like, what? No, that's, <laughs> sorry, that's that's the truth. That's the way it works. Um, and to some degree, that's because we haven't modularized very well with routing protocols. We've thrown a lot of garbage into, a, you know, and we put a lot of sugar in a five-pound sack. And, you know, so it's hard, but at any rate... But- but all, all is not lost, though. I So I do, like, system behavioral testing is basically my whole life for the last couple of years. And you can have that gigantic BGP implementation that no human understands all of it, and it can still be safe to develop it. it oh, can, yeah, of course. You, yeah, you, of course. You can, you can, and people say, oh, it's too much work to write tests. But tests keep, I, I've seen it happen. I've seen tests prevent catastrophe time after time. Like, you can yeah. you can definitely write quality code that's large. And and then you know, then you get in the whole question about integration testing versus unit testing. Where do those fit? And it goes back to documentation to some degree, right? No documentation. I don't care how good your tests are if you have no documentation. You're probably not building your tests correctly if you don't know how the system's supposed to work. You're right. you're you're, you know, you can have a very impressive testing infrastructure, but if you don't know what it's supposed to do in the first place, you don't actually know what you're testing, and so you're kind of like. Yeah, great. I tested it for whatever yeah. it's worth. Like, yeah. <laughs> I and it, tested it's, this. it's, yeah, go it's, ahead. It's, it's hard to create also good unit tests in an infrastructure where you have unit tests that are easy to create and maintain. And that's something that we're always thinking about is how do I enable, because we, we empower the network engineers to participate in this, how we, how we empower them to, to write tests effectively. Right. Um, and that's that's a hard problem. Right. I mean, I think we've solved it uh, for some of certain of our areas in our static testing that are somewhat system integration level testing. Uh, but, you know, we know we, we need to, to push the line further to look at, you know, the more the also the end to end test workflows. And a lot of, you know, some of it is still paired with a human uh, doing some of that validation. Right. It's not just. Uh, the computer, especially at the, the first iterations of this project in the early years, a lot of it was uh, manual testing that we 
we looked at it as how do I automate this? <laughs> how do I make this consistent? And it's it's a lot of hard work and it's a lot of things that I feel like when we tackle network automation more at the enterprise or DevOps that people that build something similar to what we built here is they, they just focus on the end but not testing their own, uh, making sure that their own solution, uh, the way they test is is, is good. And the, the key thing that enables us is like, I can go back with all the, the confidence we have in our testing, we, we've we rewritten an entire module, right? Uh, completely. Um, and we did it without having bugs in the field uh, of things that we've covered in our testing, right? Cool. So bottom line to me is this is an automation success story that's open source, that's built around community-based tools. And, you know, it, it, it's if you don't want to use this particular one, it's at least a pattern of how to build good things in this space that maybe start to overcome some of the things that we've talked about in the past being problematic from an, from an automation perspective. Um, how to build the community, how to get people excited about it, how to do things. That's kind of where, where I think this ends up. That's my, my impression. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So I don't have anything else. I don't know, Tom, anything? No, no, it's been great. Thanks for yeah. uh, chatting with us. Carl. Yeah. Thanks. thanks yeah. No, for thanks on. for having me. It's, it's really great to, to finally meet you guys and big fan of, <laughs> Of, oh I just, I'll be honest. I just started. I discovered your pro, uh, your podcast recently, but I've been going back and listening, <laughs> and it's really oh. good. I I really like the your your approach to this podcast. It's been really cool. fun. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, thanks. much more casual than most other podcasts. I think even in the networking space, and we don't either try to be technical or non technical. We just try to be. It is what it yeah. is. That's yeah. that's okay. That's all you need. Yeah. So. Um, Awesome. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. There's not too many Tom Ammons in the world, but um, you'll probably find the right one if you search for me. And X, I'm assuming, still. Yeah, kind of. I don't care about it too much, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tom is now down to one social media network. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm I, I, I think I'm going to follow suit because I... I, I, I and I'm going to answer the same thing as Tom. I, If you want to find me on LinkedIn... Uh, that's primarily the place. And I feel that's where most recently I've had a lot more successful engagement uh, versus I, I, I have also a Twitter, uh, Carl Buckman 11, I think. <laughs> but I, I don't, I find I, I lose more time than I, I uh, um, than on versus LinkedIn. I feel yeah. there's a lot more in the level of, of communication and the, you know, you're not limited when you're, you're responding to something to, I don't know, hundred. Yeah, right. yeah, it's interesting because I I listen to people and people say I'm not on Facebook because it's all spam, and then you hear somebody else say I'm only on Facebook because Facebook's the only one that's not spam, or <laughs> or LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever it is. We all seem to have our own impressions about it, you know. Of course, I'm I'm just not a social media net maven. I just don't like you. You you want to offend me if you just send me an email. Honestly, seriously, you know, you don't have to like people that I know for years contact me on LinkedIn and say, hey, can I send you an email? Why? Why are you asking permission? 
The guy from Nigeria is not asking permission. Yeah, why, I know. Why are, you? <laughs> why are you? So I just, you know, but it's, you know, it's all good. So anyway. All right, Carl. So do you blog any place as well? Or do you just, just do LinkedIn primarily? Well, LinkedIn, and then I, I, I joke about this to some of my colleagues. I, I blog through GitHub. Uh, that's that's oh, my fine. contribution to the the communities, the uh, the there stuff I, I open source. And yeah, you can find me on GitHub uh, with fine. all the stuff I, I do there. Yeah. Here's your cool. here's here's your challenge, Carl. Just make your contribution to society really funny uh, commit messages. <laughs> yes, yes, and we that's 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 why we squash merge actually, uh, which is a whole other. You know, if, if you know what I'm talking about, you know. Yeah. Uh, so. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. So I'm Russ White. I don't do a lot on GitHub other than push PRs. I don't write a lot of code right now. I'm too busy doing other stuff, but that's the way life is. And. Um, you always find me here at rule11.tech here on The Hedge. If you have a topic for The Hedge that you'd like to push out there, please get in, con con uh, get in touch with us. And for all you listeners, I know that you're really busy and it's good that you're spending time with us. We're happy that you're spending time with us. Thank you for spending that time. And uh, I guess that's it. Find me on LinkedIn. Find me on The Hedge. Find me on rule11.tech. And thanks for listening and we will catch you next time. <music>